So uh, we're to read from Isaiah, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 16, through Isaiah uh, 9, 7. And this, uh, before we read this, this is a really dark time in the history of Israel, and actually Judah, uh, the prophet Isaiah was writing in Judah. And uh, Israel and Syria were both looking to invade Judah, and also Judah had had a great king, Uzziah, who was... Uh, godly king and then he was followed up by Ahaz which is a terrible king so it was a time of darkness in Judah a very discouraging time for people and so uh, this prophecy was given by God to those people but it also applies to us so so in Isaiah eight sixteen, <clears throat> bind up the testimony seal the law <clears throat> among my disciples and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Judah, of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here I am, and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they... Seek the dead on behalf of the living, to the law and the testimony. They do, <clears throat> if they do not speak according to his word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard and hungry, and I, and shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom and anguish, and they will be driven into darkness." Nevertheless, the gloom will be will not be upon her who is distressed. And when it, at first he is lightly esteemed, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. Afterward more heavily oppressed her at, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have a, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal for the noisy battle... And garments rolled in blood will be used for burning in um, the fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David... And over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice and uh, with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So, with me to Micah chapter 5, we're, we're going to begin there and just a, a couple of things to point out. We're, we're going to look at a lot of different verses, so if you are up to it and want to do Bible drills with me, we can. you can turn there or you can just listen as I read them, but we'll be looking at a lot of 
uh, verses. But I also want to talk, uh, if we go back to the schedule, um, just to give you a heads up what's coming in 2024. We've got three conferences that we're, we're planning. One of them we've told you about. So the first one is coming in January, and we're going to have in the third weekend of January a joint conference with Sepulchre Bible Church, and they... Uh, you might remember in the summer they had me speak at their family camp, and what we did is went through the whole book of Hebrews in four lessons, but just pulling out of that the main theme of Hebrews, which is the supremacy of Christ. And so very Christ-centered and very worshipful, and so they were gluttons for punishment and asked to do it again for their whole church. And so um, I'll be uh, preaching there Saturday and Sunday and there'll be three lessons on Saturday, and there'll be in the middle of that a potluck lunch, and, and so we want to encourage all of you to go to that. And then on Sunday, uh, we will meet here, they'll meet there, and I'll be preaching there, and we'll uh, pipe me in here for you all to see. So we're trying to do this all together, and you, hopefully churches, uh, two churches, godly churches, get to know each other uh, a little more, and... Uh, and working together for the purpose of Christ. Then after that, I've, I've sent out an email about uh, the dinosaurs coming to GBC, so we'll be having creation truth here, so I know the kids are going to be loving that, and, and big kids as well. And, and so uh, we're working through getting all that nailed down and everything, and uh, the the deacons were up here yesterday measuring because, you know, dinosaurs are big, right? So, you know, they weren't used to being confined to certain buildings our size, right? So, um, and so we're, we're trying to see where everything's going to fit and what will fit, what won't, and so forth. But they have some cool um, uh, skeletons and, you know, dinosaur bones and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, and then on Sunday, uh, there'll be the, the president there, uh, Matt Miles, will be preaching on uh, Christ the Creator. So it'll be, again, Christ-centered. And then in September, uh, the weekend of the 15th, uh, John Connor, who we've supported for a number of years in his missions work, we're going to have him as the keynote speaker for our missions conference then. So uh, we're looking forward to that as well. And he'll be telling us more about how God is using people in Latin America as he's raising up believers there and then sending them out into the world. And that's really awesome because, you know, we always think about people from either Europe or now more so the U.S. going out into missions. Now we get to see our brothers in Latin America. God's raising them up and sending them out as well. So so looking forward to that. And uh, so that's what we have some of the things in 2024 to look forward to. Okay. We're going to talk today from a number of different scriptures about Jesus, the promised hope. For peace, Jesus, the promised hope for peace. You remember last week we explained our hopeless lack of peace. So all of us, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, every human except for Jesus, suffer this tragic situation. We're born into this tragic situation where we have this hopeless lack of peace. And so, we said last time, on your own, you men, women, and young people, you have no hope of, of experiencing true peace. And, and although I did give you a, a, point to, a pointer to the future, you still might look at that as you see the, the biblical commentary on our situation apart from Christ. Is there any hope? And if there is hope, from where does that hope come? <clears throat> well, 
our God is so good. He is gracious. He's merciful. And He not only has given us hope, but He also has made promises to us. He gave us those promises ahead of time. Not only did He plan everything out as to how He was going to provide a remedy, how He would give people who have no hope a real hope. He not only planned it, but He told us ahead of time what He was going to do so that the people of the Old Testament were able to look forward to what God was going to do. And we're going to explore that this morning. The promises that He made to them And then next week, we'll look at the fulfillment of those promises. And, of course, you know where we're going with that. And and that's kind of obvious from the season, but also the things we've been saying. But let's today, what we're going to do is try to look at it from the Old Testament perspective, primarily, to see the setting for the fulfillment that we'll talk about next time. So our main proposition today is this. Yahweh promised... Yahweh promised to provide peace through the Messiah. As we put together all of these passages in the Old Testament about the promise of peace, we find this, that Yahweh promised to provide peace through His Messiah. And we're going to learn something about that Messiah that I want you to kind of tuck away and hang on to because we're going to bring it up as we go throughout this. We're going to find that Messiah will actually embody peace. It's not that He's going to do something and say, here is peace. We're going to see that that He is our peace. He embodies peace. What that means for us then is that in order for us to experience peace with God and then ultimately peace even with men is to have a personal relationship with the one who embodies peace. You see, so that's why... When we get into the New Testament, we find that it's a personal relationship that you have to have. It's not that you're born into the right people group like the Jews. It's not that you've done this or this. You have to have a relationship with the one who embodies peace. And and he is the one we're going to be talking about today. So we start with this proposition that Yahweh promised to establish peace for his people. And... Let's talk for just a minute about the promise itself. And so, we're going to spend a good bit of time in Isaiah, uh, but stay here in Micah for now. And we're going to come back again and again to Isaiah because he talks so much about it. But Isaiah peeked into the future by God giving him uh, this, this view of the future. And he could see a future day of peace for Israel. And when he, when he saw that, he praised the Lord. And he said this, Yahweh... You will establish peace for us, since you have also performed for us all our works. Isaiah twenty six twelve. See, it is God who provides our the peace that we need. And in in reality, everything good that goes that that happens through us, He provides that. That's what Isaiah is saying there. And he worships God and he says, the peace that, that you are working, the, the peace that we're going to have, it's you who will provide that. It is your work. Bringing peace is God's work. So how will he actually accomplish this? So we're going to explore 
Five Messianic components of God's promise for peace. Five Messianic, you can see the Messiah in there, five Messianic components of this promise, this promise that we can have peace. First, the first component. Messiah will be Yahweh's agent to accomplish peace. So Yahweh is going to actually work through Messiah. Yahweh said, I am going to provide peace. But then he says, in the way I'm going to provide it, it's going to be through Messiah. Okay? So we're going to talk about now who this Messiah is. So here in Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. And you can hear you know, a lot of these things that are they're Christmas verses, if you will. Um, you know, the Isaiah 7 and 9, you know, that we had some of those read just a bit ago. This one, uh, I want us to not just think Christmas when we come across these verses, but to see what's the, what's the point. What, what is God saying? What's He promising here? <clears throat> Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you, one will go forth from me, so Messiah will go forth from Yahweh, to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In other words, he pre-existed creation. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, verse 4. And he will arise, this Messiah will arise and shepherd his flock. He'll do it in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they will remain. Because at that time, he will be great. How extensively? To the ends of the earth. And then this beautiful phrase, Verse 5, first part. And this one, the Messiah, this one will be our peace. Messiah will bring peace when He reigns on the earth. He's going to come to shepherd God's people. When He does, He will bring peace. This Messiah we find in this passage in Micah 5, is closely associated with Yahweh. He's operating in Yahweh's strength, but he's also in the the majesty of the name of Yahweh. So there's this connection, this close connection, and we're going to find that it's actually two persons of the Godhead. There's this close connection. He's operating in the majesty of the name of Yahweh. And, And we don't have time to go into all of this, but we've done this before. Where you've shown that Messiah, the prophecies about him, are saying things that could not be true of a mere human. They couldn't even be true of an angel. They can only be true of Yahweh himself. And a lot of the promises, Yahweh says, I'm going to do it. And another prophecy, Messiah is going to do it. Guess what? Messiah is Yahweh. And so we're, that's the assumption we're working with, and we've developed that in, in other lessons in the past. So I won't go into all that detail. But this Messiah, his rule, we learn here, is going to be worldwide. It's to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> but notice what else he said. The end of, 
of what we read there, beginning of verse 5, this one will be our peace. Not just that he will bring peace, but he will be our peace. Do you see what's going on here? He's, he embodies our peace. He is the peace of God that we need to be at peace with God. He embodies it. And that means that we have to have a personal relationship to Him. It's not that we just have to know the right things about Him. You know, the demons, they, they know all about Jesus and, and Messiah and, and, and they believe all those things to be true. They know they're true, but they don't believe in the sense of trusting in Him. They don't have a personal relationship with Him and they can't, you see. It's not just about knowing the right things, the right theology, or even knowing the Bible. Satan knows the Bible really well. He can quote it well. He just misuses it, and he twists it. It's about a personal relationship. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 7. So you go back to the left, a good ways there, um, before Ezekiel and Jeremiah. <clears throat> Isaiah 7, another one of those uh, we might call a Christmas verse, and think of it that way. But I hope that in this lesson we'll see that there's so much going on here, and it's something we should be thinking about year-round. But it is good that if we hadn't been, at least now we're doing it, right? Okay? So, here in Isaiah 7, think about what, what's happened in Isaiah's day. And so, we can go ahead and go to the next slide where I've got a map there. And, and, and Brent mentioned this briefly. But what was happening in Isaiah's day when this was, was written is that, you remember, uh, Israel by that time had split into two kingdoms. So originally under David was one kingdom under Solomon, but then Solomon's son, Rehoboam the fool, he, he, you know, he was very foolish and ended up splitting the kingdom. And you have now the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Okay? So what happens in Isaiah's day is that Assyria, remember eventually they're going to come and take over Israel, but... They're already knocking on the door. And up north of Judah, you have the northern kingdom of Israel, and that would be on the, the west, the left. And then, um, you can't see it really on the slide very much, but on the very right-hand top corner and then up is Syria, okay, where Damascus is. And you, you, a lot of times they'll talk about Damascus in, in the Bible, and that's Syria. And so... Those two kings thought, you know, if we pool our resources and if we can get Judah to join us, the three of us might be able to hold off Assyria. Okay? Well, King Ahaz is like, no, not doing that. And, and so they're like, okay, well, we're going to come down there, we're going to kill you, and we're going to put a puppet king in your place. Then that puppet king will do what we say, and then all three of us together can go and we can fight against Assyria. Now, God already said that they were going to take them over, but they're like, ah, oh, we don't care what God says. We're going to fight back and we're going to keep them from coming. Okay? So, now you've got the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria who are joining forces to come after Judah. And King Ahaz of Judah was terrified. And he's, he's fretting. What do we do about this? So God sends Isaiah, the prophet, to, to comfort him, to encourage him, to trust in Yahweh. God has already planned all this out. You don't worry about it. He's going to take down those two kings that are going to come, want to come after you. 
that Ahaz is like, eh, I don't know about that. And so God told Isaiah, offer to Ahaz a sign. That I'll, I'll give him a sign. And Ahaz, for whatever reason, he's like, he just rejects it. No, I'm not asking for a sign. And God gave him one anyway. Look, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This is the sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. And so, what God is is doing here is he's, He's giving a sign. He says, okay, there's going to be born of a maiden. Now, that literally won't be a virgin, but that's to come. A maiden is going to have a son. She's going to name him Emmanuel. And before that boy is old enough, as he says, which about 12, the two kings that you fear, the ones from Pekin of Israel and Rezin of Assyria, they will fall. God has already declared that they're going to fall. And they will fall by that time. Now, as we look at 714 there in Isaiah, the language is too lofty to only be talking about that boy that will be born in in Isaiah's day. Okay? There's more going on here. It's pointing forward to a much greater deliverer. And yes, the sign was initially for Ahaz. It ultimately points to Messiah. This Messiah, another one of his names is Emmanuel. God with us. Imanu, with us. El, God. God with us. And this greater Emmanuel is actually going to be God who comes to live with his people. A literal virgin will have a son, and he will be the son of God. Messiah himself will be the sign that God is bringing peace, ultimate peace, to his people. Now, back to the history here. Eventually, Assyria did invade Israel. And what was going on in chapter 8 of Isaiah is that, you know, the, the, the political situation was bad for, for Judah. Okay, so you got these two kings that are wanting to come down and, and, you know, attack. Then you've got Assyria up there. What's going to happen with them? Because they're even more powerful. And... And it was just bad. And so everybody was just freaking out over, oh, what if this happens? What if this happens? And what if this happens? And so in the section right before what Brent read for us, God says, don't fear what they fear. You are to fear Yahweh. He says, and he 
And he says, I shall be your fear and I shall be your dread. And then you will have a sanctuary. He will be your sanctuary. Isn't that beautiful? If you fear Yahweh, He will be your sanctuary. Okay? So this is given right in the middle of, of Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 that we read and we're getting ready to get into. Okay? Fear God and He is the sanctuary. Okay? But what do we do? How, how does all that work? Well, you've got Isaiah seven fourteen, Emmanuel, God with us. And then we're going to see how this leads into Isaiah 9. So, as I said, Assyria did invade Israel and... And it, and it kind of came in, in waves where they took the northern part of Israel first. And that's what's happening here in Isaiah 8. So look at the end of Isaiah 8, the very last verse, verse 22. So Assyria came in and they invaded. Verse 22. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. So Israel, the northern kingdom, will be plunged into darkness because this enemy will have overtaken them, carried many of the people away, stopped their worship, which was very problematic at that time. But they will be in darkness. He's going to mention the, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali in just a minute. We're going to read more. Why does he mention them? Well, they're up in the north, and you can see um, at on the top of the map that's on this second map that's on the screen. Uh, there where you can see the, down at the very bottom is the sea of the Dead Sea. And then just to the west of it, to the left, is uh, a little... I put a star there. That's where Jerusalem is because it's kind of hard to read from there. Okay? Then if you go straight north up the Jordan River, you get the Sea of Galilee. Okay? That's where a lot of Jesus' ministry happened, remember? So the region of Galilee. Well, just to the west, the left of that, you'll see underlined up at the top, there's Naphtali. That was, and this, this is a, a map of the 12 tribes, or at least some of them. And you've got Naphtali up there near the top, and then right below that is Zebulun, okay? And I've got those underlined in yellow, so you kind of know. That is the route that the Assyrians took when they came from the northeast, and they came down around the Sea of Galilee, and they came right through Naphtali and Zebulun, and then eventually came all the way down uh, to just north of, of Jerusalem there and took all that over. But Zebulun and Naphtali are mentioned here because they're the first, to fall to the Assyrians. They're the first to be plunged into darkness. And there's another reason which we'll see when we get to the end today. Though they've been plunged into darkness, the end of chapter 8, there is hope. Look with me now at chapter 9. Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt because of their sin. This is talking about what God did. 
to them. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, and Galilee of the Gentiles is the, became the name of the region where Zebulun and Naphtali were. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And then he says here to God, you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. And as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders the rod of their oppressors, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. And in this beautiful verse, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of peace. And we'll start, we'll come back to verse 7 in a bit. What he's saying is that just as Assyria invaded Zebulun and Naphtali, so Messiah will come to Zebulun and Naphtali. But he will bring the light. A great light will dawn upon them. Those who were in darkness will see a great light. But we learn a good bit more about this Messiah in verse 6. Let's talk about that. Just like in Isaiah 7.14, we have a child mentioned. And Isaiah does that to tie those together so that we don't think those are just two completely different things. They're not. Emmanuel is... Essential to understanding this. It's the same person. It's the same Messiah. Okay? And he says first that a child would be born. In other words, he would be human. But there's so much more going on here. While a child being born to us points to his humanity. You are wondered why he's not stuttering and repeating himself unnecessarily here. Because he says next... A son will be given to us, not born. That points to Messiah's deity. A child being born points to his humanity. A son being given. You see, Messiah as son. Hopefully you know where I'm going with this, right? It'll come together if you're not tracking yet. As the Son, capital S, He was never born because He pre-existed. And so He can't be born. He has to be given. So you have both His humanity and His deity brought out here beautifully in these phrases here in the Old Testament. And then we learn some more about Him. Because this Messiah can't be just a man. He had to be man 
a man, but he can't be just a man. Because look, at, think about the titles here. The end of verse 6. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. And then this, Mighty God. There's only one God. But he said that's Messiah's name, Mighty God. So that's why we have the doctrine of the Trinity. There's three persons, and Messiah is one of those persons. He is, and see, that can't be just a man. Eternal Father, again, you see, that's why He's given here. See, there's there's a hint to us to help us understand that. He's given to us rather than being born as Son because He is eternal. He has pre-existed for all eternity. He was never created, never born as Son. And then Prince of Peace. The titles are too lofty to be anything other than God. And see, do you see the hope here? Because not only do we have in this His greatness and, and how, yes, He is able to do this. But the hope comes in this, that the child is born to us, God's people. You see, this is not just some abstract theology. He is born to us. And He is given from heaven to us. You see that? You see that the personal nature of this that God intends? It's a personal relationship with God Himself because Messiah is God. And remember, we have to keep 714 in there. He is Immanuel, God with us. Wow. I don't know if you... Do you ever meditate on that name? God with us. Because, you know, so many people in the world, that gods, the gods are other, and then even if they believe in the one true God, at least to a point, he, He's other. He's only other. He's out there. He's transcendent. They don't have this aspect of His imminence that we do, that the Bible does. He is with us. Yes, He is There, in a high and holy place, Isaiah will say in Isaiah 57. But He is also here with us. He dwells with the lowly, as Isaiah will say there. So, this child in 9.6 is the same child in 7.14, Emmanuel. You see, Messiah will arrive as a helpless child, seemingly insignificant... He came in humility rather than clothed in glory. As David's son, Messiah will reign on David's throne on the earth. We're going to see that when we get to verse 7 later. As God's son, the eternal that we just read about, the eternal father, Messiah will reign from God's throne in heaven. And you can thank Psalm 2 there. Okay, So, this lofty language. And so, Isaiah's names for this child, they culminate in this one name, this fourth pair that he puts together, Prince of Peace. And peace does, here, include the absence of war and conflict. But it is much broader than that. 
It points to that deep sense of peace, blessing, and joy of the Hebrew idea of shalom. Shalom in the Old Testament refers to completeness, wholeness, harmony, fulfillment. That's what they mean by peace in the Old Testament when they use shalom. That's the kind of peace we can have with God. And ultimately with others. Okay. When Messiah comes to reign over the earth, there will be peace, as we find here. And because He's the one who causes the nations to be at peace, He's called the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince who actually will accomplish peace. But how can He produce peace when the world has never really known peace after sin came into the world? You think about it. I mean, very early on, there's murder. And then it just gets worse throughout all of history. To today, just read the news. It's bad out there. The world is in a mess. There's not been peace. How can, the, how can He do this? Well, as wonderful counselor, Messiah has the divine wisdom to know how to rule so that there will be peace. As mighty God, He has the power to make it happen. As eternal Father, He cares for His children and He plans for them to have a world of peace in which to live. And when we arrive in that kingdom and experience for ourselves what He can do, we too will call Him Prince of Peace. Amen? Okay, so all of that was, who are we talking about here? Now, I haven't really named Him yet, although you know where we're going. We talked about the who. Okay? Now, let's look at some other components of this... uh, Messianic components of this promise that God has given to bring peace. So second, Messiah will guarantee peace through the new covenant. Through the new covenant. Turn over to to the right to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. Another big book that's usually pretty easy to find. And we'll be looking beginning in verse 25. So, Ezekiel 34. <clears throat> Messiah will guarantee peace through the new covenant. So, what we find in some of these verses we're going to look at and others that I'll just refer to, Yahweh is going to accomplish peace through a covenant of peace. So that's just another name for the new covenant that we find as we put all this together. So, it's going to be this covenant of peace that He's going to um, bring about for his people. It's, it, he does all of it, remember. We already said that. This is the new covenant. And just for context, remember, uh, when we get to Ezekiel 36, that's one of the, the great big passages about the new covenant. Okay, So it, that's going to be right in the heart of what we're going to be talking about here. <clears throat> so, just referring to Isaiah 42, verse 6, Isaiah 49, 8, uh, It talks there about Messiah Himself being that covenant. He will be the covenant, it says. God will will give you as a covenant to the people. You see, so it's not just that Jesus, we're going to give give it away a little bit, brought in that new covenant, that effected that new covenant. But the Old Testament says He is the covenant. Again, you have that personal relationship that's required. Okay? He will embody the covenant of peace. Okay, now, Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 25. God's saying here, 
and I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land. So you kind of see in the kingdom what, what this is going to look like. So that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them in the places around my hill, there in Jerusalem, a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. Also the tree of the field will yield its fruit, and the earth will yield its increase. And they will be secure on their land. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. See, it's tied to people knowing Him. This is why He's doing it. He says, When I have broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them, and they will no longer be a prey to the nations, and the beasts of the earth will not devour them, but they will live securely, and no one will make them afraid. Now that's peace, right? And I will establish for them a renowned planting place, and they will not again be victims of famine in the land. They will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. Then they will know that I, Yahweh, their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord Yahweh. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, declares the Lord Yahweh. Third, third component. Messiah will provide peace through spiritual salvation. You see, so, and this is where the Jews kind of got hung up. They didn't understand that aspect, but it's, a, it's like the most important one, right? He's going to accomplish this peace with God and ultimately peace with men through spiritual salvation. And, you know, your mind may go to Isaiah 53. You think there in that graphic detail how Messiah was, he suffered for us in order to bring, to, to save us from our sins. But there, if you're thinking like Isaiah 53, then right after that chapter in Isaiah 54, just five verses in, he refers to this one as Redeemer, your Redeemer. Okay, so you see... That's what he's been talking about in 53, is our salvation, to be redeemed. And then he calls him your Redeemer in 54.5. And then just five more verses later, he brings up again this covenant of peace. You see how all this is tied together? The idea of peace with salvation? So peace, God is not promising peace without salvation. That's what so many in the world have wanted. That's what so many of the Jews have wanted, is peace without salvation, because they didn't think they needed salvation. But we showed last week, that every one of us desperately needs salvation. Okay, turn to Psalm 85. So back to the left again, good ways. Psalm 85. So what we have here in Psalm 85 is the sons of Korah, they bring together these concepts of peace, salvation, and righteousness. And when they talk about righteousness here, it's the divine attribute that is behind salvation. So it is God's righteousness that's going to bring about salvation. But, you know, when we get into the New Testament, that righteousness, which is God's, through salvation, ends up becoming our. He gives us His righteousness, right? And so those are ideas that, that this is where that's going. But right here, he's talking about God's righteousness that brings salvation. So, look, Psalm 84 or 85 and beginning in verse 4. The Psalms of Korah cry out, Restore us, O God, of our salvation. 
and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Yahweh. And grant us your salvation. I will hear what God, Yahweh, will say. For he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. So that ties back into Isaiah 8, right? That glory may dwell in our land. And a beautiful verse here. Loving kindness, that idea of chesed, the steadfast love of God. Loving kindness and truth have met together. And then righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And so what he's doing is he's pulling these ideas together. Salvation, peace, righteousness. And and he's just pulling it all in together so that you see that what's going on here is very much spiritual. It is moral in the biblical sense of things. It's not just, you know, that you have to be born into the right people, that you do the right things. There has to be this concept of spiritual salvation. And if you are currently without any hope of peace as we laid out last time, you need this salvation. This is spiritual healing that we're talking about. Think back to Isaiah 53, 5, where Isaiah there telling about how Messiah, he took our penalty for sin when he suffered and died for us. And and he said there, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. Think about it. Okay, so here's this one that he's been talking about all along, this Messiah, who we said has to be Yahweh. And all the good things it says about him. All that he's going to do. And he's going to be pierced through. For us. For our trans- for our sins. He was crushed. For our iniquities. How could that happen to him? Why him? It had to be. It could only be him. The chastening the punishment for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. Spiritual healing. But that phrase, the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, guess what Hebrew word is actually the word for well-being there? Shalom. The chastening for our shalom. Our peace fell upon Him. You see, because, folks, because you and I are sinners, we had offended a holy God. Somebody had to pay that price. And it couldn't be us. We weren't capable of paying it. Because if we are to, in a sense, pay it, it's for all eternity. We can never pay it and be healed. But there was one who could. That Messiah. Messiah suffered. 
to bring us peace. First, peace with God. So how do we benefit from Messiah's saving work? Well, it's a, a personal relationship with Him. Uh, if you'd like, uh, turn to Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26, just a couple of verses there. Verses 3 and 4. The steadfast of mind you, God, will keep in perfect peace. Why? Because He trusts in you. See, trust. And he elaborates on that. Verse 4, trust in Yahweh forever. For in Yahweh, Yahweh actually is what he says literally. For in Yahweh, Yahweh, we have an everlasting rock. Oh, sinner, put your trust in Yahweh, in Messiah, to be saved from your sins. Component 4, Messiah will bring comprehensive peace with both God and men. Uh, turn a good ways to the right, just before you get to the New Testament, to Zechariah. So if you hit Matthew, you've gone too far. Zechariah, the second to the last book. <clears throat> and start in, in, we'll start in chapter 6. <clears throat> Messiah is going to bring comprehensive peace with God and man. A, a total peace. A complete peace. It's, it's going to cover everything, but it's both for peace with God and with men. We're going to see in Zechariah 6.13 that Messiah is going to accomplish peace by being both king and priest. So, Zechariah 6.13. Yes, here he's talking about this branch. That's another name for Messiah. Okay. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh. And he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne... And the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now, for the Jews, they couldn't reconcile that. Priest and king, it can't happen. But the book of Hebrews explains it beautifully, okay? As does this verse. Okay, now turn to Zechariah 9. A couple verses there. Zechariah Zechariah chapter 9. We're going to see that in its Messiah's priestly work of salvation that will bring peace with God and with men. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's his priestly work where he comes humbly because he's going to be the sacrifice for us, as Isaiah 53 uh, indicated for us. But through his kingly work, He'll bring peace to the nations. Verse 10 now. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. And the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, comment on how contemporary things are going here a little bit. You may have heard something that sounds a little familiar that you've heard out there. Uh, wicked people out there around the world are using this phrase, from the river to the sea. They want Jews wiped out. First, in the land of Palestine, and then the rest of the world. That's tragic. But what does God say here? 
Messiah will have dominion and will work peace. Peace that looks really impossible right now. He will bring peace to the nations, not just from the river to the sea, but as he says here, from sea to sea. And then just so you don't mistake him, he says, to the ends of the earth. Messiah is going to bring peace throughout the entire earth because he will have dominion over all, including those who hate him. He will have dealt with them and he will bring peace. Okay, now back to Isaiah 9. So we haven't really talked much about chapter 9, verse 7 of Isaiah. <clears throat> Zechariah 9.10 ties directly into this. You'll see here, Isaiah 9.7, There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace. There will be peace among the nations. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, will accomplish this. And so our final fifth component, Messiah will establish peace among men in his kingdom. He will establish peace among men in his kingdom. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to refer you to Isaiah 66. Uh, verses 10 through 14, for example, and there's a lot of other passages that talk about and just give you more description of the, the peace of his kingdom and what that's going to look like. Okay, And and some of us see that as happening in an, an earthly kingdom first and then continuing on into uh, eternity. And others view that as that's that happens, you know, in eternity. So not an earthly kingdom per se. So just different ways of looking at that. So, who is this Messiah? Well, it's really no secret that I've been talking about Jesus all along, right? And for one, it was in the title. And, you know, if you've been in church more than a couple times, you know that's who we're always talking about. Because this is all about Him. Jesus, the Son of God, He took on human flesh when He was born of the Virgin Mary. And... Matthew, and I'll read from there, Matthew 4. Matthew quoted something we read just a little bit ago in Isaiah 9. He pointed out how the opening verses of Isaiah 9 were fulfilled when Jesus went to the region of Galilee to teach. And the region of Galilee is, guess what? It's the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So if you... Go up to the top there. Down at the bottom is Jerusalem. There's a little star there. And then up at the top, you see the Sea of Galilee. And right to the northwest of the sea there, right on the sea, is a city called Capernaum. And that is in the region, what used to be called Zebulun and Naphtali in Isaiah's day. In Jesus' day, it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, So, Matthew is telling us who he's talking about, who all of that is talking about. Beginning of verse 12. Now, when Jesus had heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. 
And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The people in that region did get to see a great light when Jesus, the Messiah. Christ means Messiah. It's just Greek for Messiah. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. When He came... And he went to Capernaum. You remember Peter's house there and all, right there, fishing village and stuff. And he came and he began to teach there and he taught a lot in that region. The light shone. Because Jesus is the light of the world. As we take that into the Lord's table, I want to read just a verse that Jesus something that he taught that ties in with that. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, therefore Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. That's the peace we've been talking about, peace with God, the light of life, the light that that shines on life, that you, you become... The light yourself. You become light, sons of light, children of light, because you follow the one who is the light of the world. And I call upon you, those of you who still have not trusted in him, put your trust in the one who is the light. Put your trust in Jesus. You must have that personal relationship with him we've been talking about. And as Jesus called you, follow him who is the light.